William's desire of seeing Fanny dance made more than a momentary impression on his uncle. The hope of an opportunity, which Sir Thomas had then given, was not given to be thought of no more. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 26 to 30 of Mansfield Park. Let's start with your 100-word summary. Sir Thomas delights William and Fanny and disconcerts Mrs Norris by proposing a ball at Mansfield. Mary gives Fanny a necklace, originally Henry's gift, to wear with William's cross. Fanny finds Edmund has bought her a chain for the cross and he describes his feelings for Fanny and Mary, which throw Fanny into a mixture of despair and delight. Henry invites William to travel with him to London. Fanny finds she must open the ball with Henry. Mary is angry with Edmund. Edmund leaves for his ordination. Mary misses him and regrets her anger. Henry returns and tells Mary he wants to marry Fanny. Well, as usual, you put some things in that I didn't. You focused on a broader range of things than me, particularly the emotions. So mine is... Fanny goes to Mary for advice on what to wear to the ball. Mary gives her a necklace so she can wear the amber cross that William brought for her. When Fanny gets home, Edmund has also bought a chain for her cross. She prefers his, but agrees to wear Mary's to the ball, though in the end wears both, as the necklace is too big for the cross. William travels to London with Henry, and Edmund goes to Peterborough for his ordination. Mary misses Edmund badly and determines to marry him. Henry tells Mary he means to marry Fanny. Right. I did think it was interesting that you said Henry wants to marry Fanny and I said he means to marry Fanny, which I think is, well, I well, think it's truer, yeah. <laughs> I suppose the thing I'm most admiring of these chapters is we have these two intertwined plots of Fanny and Edmund and Mary and Edmund. And she just manages, sometimes they come together, sometimes they're separate but she handles them so beautifully mm. in this narrative, but comes into a couple of places where I think, you know, she's making some really significant points, but they just flow yeah. with the rest of the story. Such as? Such as particularly how Fanny thinks about things after she's found Edmund writing a letter to her. Mm. I find that sort of whole scene between Fanny and Edmund when she comes into him in his room is sort of central in identifying what we feel about Fanny. Maybe we should just jump back to the start of the chapter because right. even before the necklace thing, yes. there's a couple of interesting points that I noticed when I was reading through it. First of all, there's this long bit of Edmund reflecting on his relationship with Mary. It's not dialogue. It says his conviction of her regard for him was sometimes very strong. He could look back on a long course of encouragement and she was as perfect in disinterested attachment as in everything else. But he's trying to decide, did she love him well enough to forego London? And sometimes he thinks yes and sometimes he thinks no. We haven't had Edmund's inner reflections before. Yeah, back when we were talking about the play. Yes. And I said we only know 
his motivation through what he tells Fanny. We don't know what was actually happening in his head. But here we do see exactly what's happening in his head in relation to Mary. Actually, one other thing I'd like to say about Edmund is he has been, from the beginning, absolutely intransigent about what he's going to do. These are the rules of us getting together. I'm not going to compromise. Yeah. In effect, he's saying, what I say will go. Yeah. Which is, Mary is willing to make a lot of compromises. And she's willing to accept him being a clergyman. But he's just not willing to budge even a millimetre. No. He's expecting her to make all the compromises and he's not making any himself. And then there's this very realistic picture of Fanny not knowing how to dress, deciding to go to Mary Crawford and Mrs Grant for advice, which I think again is, you know, we said last time she has these weird conversations with Mary, but that's possibly because Mary is the only person she's actually been able to talk to aside from Edmund. And even though she has all this sort of faintly masochistic attraction to spending time with Mary. But in this instance, she is actually genuinely thinking Mary is the person I can turn to because she won't get any help from Lady Bertram or Mrs Norris. But the other thing that struck me is Lady Bertram is getting a new dress for the ball. We know this because it says her maid was rather hurried in making up a new dress for her. But Fanny doesn't get a new dress. What Fanny wears is the white dress with glossy spots that she got for the wedding. And obviously the dress that was bought for the wedding is a good dress to wear to a ball, but she's also worn it out to dinner. Yes. So it's like she has this one good dress that has to cover this huge gamut of ball down to going out to dinner. So Fanny's concerns about what to wear are very kind of... Very real. Very real. And her desire to have someone to help her is also very real. And the fact that she chooses Mary over either of her aunts is fairly telling. Well, I mean, and another bit much later with that is when after the ball's over, she's got to talk about it to someone (laughs) and she has to wait till she can get down to the parsonage. Yeah. But, of course, the big thing is the amber cross and her wanting to have a chain to wear with it. And people have come up with various symbolic views of the amber cross. I'm not going to go into details. I'll put some links in the show notes. But, you know, someone has said it's about the link between Christianity and slavery. And some people, perhaps more obviously, have seen it as a sexual metaphor because the necklace Mary gives her is too big to go through the hole in the cross. But... Let's go back to the basics here, that Charles Austin, one of the Sailor Brothers, bought yes. topaz crosses and gold chains in 1801, and he got one for Jane and one for Cassandra. And I've got a picture here. It comes from the Jane Austen House Museum. I'll put a link to it or maybe even the picture itself in the show notes. And this also came up in a talk given a little while ago to the Jane Austen Society of Australia by Adrian Dickens, who is a jewellery expert, because one of them is a Greek cross design, whereas the other cross is the Latin cross style, which is what we more see as a crucifix. Now, of course, William only buys amber crosses, and he can't afford a chain, whereas the crosses that Charles sent had simple gold chains. The photos from the Jane Austen House Museum show the crosses on chains. I don't know if these are the original chains or or replicas, but very simple chains. And so this amber cross and the chain that Edmund gives her to go through, it seems very much to match the topaz crosses that the Austen girls had. And I think the only symbolic aspect would be the fact that this necklace is much fancier and she wants something simpler. And that's as much a character 
Easter thing that Mary is all about, Mary and Henry are all about the sort of um, the expensive, the smart, uh, yes. whereas Edmund correctly recognises that Fanny likes the simplicity. She doesn't want something to draw attention away from the cross. She wants the cross to be the main thing. To me, that's what that whole piece is about. I've always thought of that cross as simply Jane Austen remembering the crosses that he bought for her and Cassandra. And it was a memory. And then she is making... She's she's using them. Yeah, she's infusing the characters and personalities into it. I do like the fact that we have Fanny initially not wanting it and then trying to pick the one that she thinks Mary wants least. And then, of course, when Fanny learns it's Henry's and wants to give it back, she pretty much makes Fanny apologise for that by making her feel guilty. Yes. It's also, at this point, we do learn that Fanny has noticed what Henry is doing. Fanny has not been oblivious to Henry paying her more attention. But from the start, Fanny has been sensitised to the way Henry goes on to women. Yeah. And she is sort of a bit taken aback, but presumably thinks he has to take what's there. Yeah. It says he wanted, she supposed, to cheat her of her tranquillity as he had cheated them. And whether he might not have some concern in the necklace, she could not be convinced that he had not. For Miss Crawford, complacent as a sister, was careless as a woman and a friend. Yeah. Which is... A little bit mean, but also kind of spot on. it's true. (laughs) Yeah. No, well, it's absolutely true. Yeah. I suppose the bit that comes next that I think is very significant is the part where Fanny goes up to her room and sees Edmund. Edmund is in a pretty low state at this stage, but Mm -hmm. Fanny is highly emotional when she sees he's giving him a gift. But it is also, I think, a little bit annoying that as soon as Fanny mentions Mary's name, Edmund is suddenly going off into this rapture about Mary when he's meant to be there giving a gift to Fanny. Yes. But yes, Edmund does have a valid point about Fanny not returning the necklace once he's given oh, his. Oh, completely, because, yes. yes. But I suppose the thing that is almost surprising is the outrage way that Fanny says, no, it's not better. I think it's actually quite fair in that, He is saying, this is a better necklace than the one I've given you. And she's saying, no, it's not a little handsomer in its way and for my purpose, not half so fit. The chain will agree with William's cross better than the necklace. And I think that's probably very true. true. It's just somehow the tone I pick up and I may have picked it up wrong. And then, of course, he then spoils it all by sort of saying, yes, you really matter such a lot to me, Fanny. You matter almost as much as Miss Crawford. (laughs) And this, for Fanny, is probably the most definite indication he's ever yet given her that he definitely wants to marry Miss Crawford. Mm. And, of course, he then goes away, leaving her in this incredibly disturbed state. And Jane Austen does this beautiful thing of taking us through her feelings and what she's feeling. And Uh, each emotional experience gets a paragraph. So you get three paragraphs coming after this. And the first one, which is her despair at Edmund, I see it almost that this is one time when she doesn't want what Edmund wants. She's realised Edmund wants to marry Mary Crawford and she doesn't want him to. She doesn't quite say that, but she she wants to pray for his happiness. But she is going to be praying that Edmund doesn't get what he wants. 
She's telling herself that if she believed Miss Crawford to deserve him, then it would all be different. But because Miss Crawford is unworthy, she's sure it's going to be terrible. But then the next paragraph, she's stepped back from it and is doing what she does so often, looking at her own motives. And saying that it was her intention, as she felt it to be her duty, to try to overcome all that was excessive, all that bordered on selfishness in her affection for Edmund. And what's interesting here is, was she basically thinking, I want Edmund to stay celibate? I think her focus here is more on controlling her own feelings about Edmund. What I think she's saying is that she wants to keep things the way they are. Mm. And she's saying, is it selfish to not want him to leave Mansfield? Mm. See, I guess what I take out of this paragraph is her saying, I must control my feelings for Edmund because I have no right to these feelings. So basically, she's just saying to herself, don't even think about the possibility of marrying Edmund. Yes. She's trying to stamp that down. She won't put it into words. Yeah. So this is the thing that she's worrying about. Can she control her feelings? And Jane Austen is behind her in this. Yes. There's a slightly affectionate tone in that. It's not straightforward, Fanny's doing the right thing. It's dear little Fanny. Yeah. Here she is doing the right thing. Well, working so, so hard to do her duty and overcome her feelings because her humility tells her that this is not something she's entitled to, so she has to stop feeling it. Yes. And then we have the third paragraph. (laughs) Which is, she's even sweeter about Fanny when she suddenly sees Fanny as a very inexperienced 18-year-old girl behaving like probably an even younger girl who's totally in love with someone. Mm. And it has that beautiful bit about she had all the heroism of principle, but let her not be much wondered at if, after making all these good resolutions on the side of self-government, she seized the scrap of paper on which Edmund had begun writing to her as a treasure beyond all her hopes. Yeah, which is what you were saying about her being like any teenage girl with a crush. So affectionately. She's laughing full of affection because she thinks it's charming. Yeah. She thinks it's funny but charming. Yeah. Not funny but grotesque. Yeah. The way she manages to fit this information Mm. into this elegant writing, she's so, so concise with it. Mm. In the previous chapters, with Fanny being worried about her dress and how to wear the cross for the ball, we've had this lovely picture of her being sort of nervous before the ball and then in the bit where she's actually practising her steps about the drawing room as long as she could be safe from being noticed by Mrs Norris. It's quite a nice picture of a young girl who is just excited about something. I think this is it. There's nothing clouding her view She's not thinking balls are not for me. She's quite happy with herself as a dancer. Yeah, though she doesn't want to be watched too much, which is why she freaks out when Sir Thomas says she has to open the dance. It is so awful that nobody had bothered to tell her. I mean, it's not surprising, but she could have been told. They didn't tell her because they assumed she knew, but no one checked (laughs) that she knew. We do get this picture of Henry Crawford really, really knowing how to do things because not only has he secured her for the first dance, but he's then, he's had a quiet word to Mrs Norris to find out which is going to be the dance before supper. And then he gets her for that one as well, so he will also take her into supper. And again, Fanny is not stupid. She realises that he's done that. Oh, yes. And she wishes he hadn't. And she wishes he hadn't because... 
what she wants to do at the ball is to to get some dancing, to dance with Edmund, to spend as little time with Henry Crawford as possible, not to be a wallflower, but not to have people looking at her. Yes. Then in the next chapter, I think Edmund's absence is really what makes Mary rethink everything. And suddenly for the first time in her life, she's feeling jealousy. It's probably a bit extreme to say she was jealous of the Miss Owens. No, she's, Jane Austen says she I know she is. I'm criticising Jane Austen. Okay. <laughs> Most of what I've thought about this, or what I've written down, is criticism of Jane Austen. Okay. When Fanny is there and Mary is desperate to know about Edmund and she's making oh, all these... Oh, that, that's she's a making, scheme. Yeah, she's making all these jokes and Fanny is just absolutely being straight man and ignoring the jokes and seeming completely indifferent. I poor, mean, poor Mary. Well, she is sort of paying Mary out. She knows Mary's trying to get information <laughs> from her and she's damned if she's going to give her any. Well, without actually lying, she's telling her what she knows, but she's deliberately dialing it right back. Yes. (laughs) Chapter 30, of course, is almost Henry's big chapter because this is where Henry tells Mary that he's fallen in love with Fanny. And I can't remember what my reaction was the first time I read it, but I've kind of never paid that much attention to exactly what he says. I think I mentioned earlier that the Daily Nightly podcast, they had never read Mansfield Park before. Yes. Up until now, they'd been very anti-Henry. And they got to this chapter and they were so enraptured by some of the things he said. And I thought it was really, really interesting to hear what they said because some of the lines they picked up on were the line where he says, I could so wholly and absolutely confide in her, said he, and that is what I want. And I thought that is just such a beautiful thing to hear. Yeah, he's not just interested in her looks or her quietness. He feels that he can be himself and talking to her. And then when he talks about how I will make her happy, happier than she has ever yet been herself or ever seen anybody else. And he's made so angry by seeing her at the beck and call of that stupid woman and Mrs. Norris being horrible. Yes. All of which are things, by the way, that he'd been seeing for months before and hadn't noticed, but let's not go there for the moment. <laughs> yes. But they really didn't know how to feel because they did have the sense that the book is going to end up with Fanny and Edmund together. But after reading this, they felt, well, this is almost like Mr. Darcy and his change of heart. Yes, it's a trope of being redeemed by the love of a good woman, but Henry is presented so convincingly in this chapter that you do almost go over to him. And I was also thinking, and I should have been referring to these earlier, but I've only just gone back and reread all of those little notes Jane Austen made when her friends and family read the book. Oh, yeah. Which is really interesting because you get this split between delighted in Fanny, could not bear Fanny, thought it better than Pride and Prejudice, didn't like it as much as Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) But the one that I remembered is someone called Mr. J. Plumptree. He felt that the plot is so well contrived that I had not an idea till the end which of the two would marry Fanny, H.C. or Edmund. And another thing is on our Facebook group, back when I uploaded our second episode on Mansfield Park, there was a bit of a conversation happening in the comments and Bethany said in that conversation, how can you read chapter 30 and not want them to be together? And I'm going to not go into details about my feelings on this because we're talking about Henry Crawford in our next episode and I want to really dig down into this a bit more then. But I had never really, until now, until listening to the Daily Nightly and Facebook, really looked at the words of what he says in this chapter. And it's true. It is genuinely... He says some lovely, lovely things. And it's also 
He's not saying she's very pretty, she's very sweet, she'd do what I want. He kind he, of is. He, no, no, he's not just saying yeah. that. What he is saying is she has these really noble qualities. He just looks at her moral qualities and describes them in a way that Fanny would have approved of. Yeah. And what we're seeing here is both Henry and Mary, with all their superficiality, they are responding to these deeper principles that Edmund and Fanny have. And they can't even articulate to themselves why they're responding to it. What they feel is this deep trustworthiness yes. inside Edmund and Fanny. Mm. And Mary starts feeling it almost immediately. Yeah. And now Henry, having spent time with Fanny, yeah. has picked up. And the other interesting thing he also mentions there is how clever she is. Yes. That's one of the things that I thought was really interesting mm. in what he had to say about her. Yeah. But, you know, every time I read the book, because I know what's going to happen later, I just don't focus in on what Henry Crawford is actually saying in this scene. But really, it is... Well, look, this is Henry Crawford again. When Henry Crawford talks, he talks really well. You know, when he was way back saying why he wanted to be in a play, he gives this lovely, rich description. Mm. When he's talking about Fanny, he doesn't just give the ordinary account. He immediately goes in and analyses quite deeply yeah. what he thinks is so admirable about Fanny. We've talked all about what Henry said, but there's also this thing that I found not shocking, sort of almost sad, which is Mary's response to this when she's talking about how lovely it will be for Fanny. She says, I know that a wife you loved would be the happiest of women and that even when you cease to love, she would yet find in you the liberality and good breeding of a gentleman. Well, that's so sad in a way that Mary just can't believe that anyone would go on loving. Doesn't believe anyone would go on loving or she doesn't believe Henry would go on loving? Well, that's the thing. We don't know. But then it's the next thing when she says how well he would behave. Now, what is she saying? That when he goes off having affairs, he's going to be very discreet about I've, it? I've always assumed that's what she means. But he won't necessarily be faithful, but he will be discreet. But this is this terribly cynical view that Mary has been landed with and that Edmund has come and sort of wiped it a bit, made her believe there's an alternative, mm. but she doesn't believe it's different with Henry. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so justifiably. Mm. In Henry's case, she can see that he loves Fanny, but she doesn't believe it's a lasting thing Yes, with Henry. But I think she probably does with Edmund. Yes. Which does lead me into something... Henry somehow hasn't noticed that Mary and Edmund like each other. Yes. Because Mary says that if they settle in Northamptonshire, then we shall all be together. When she had spoken it, she recollected herself and wished it unsaid. But there was no need of confusion, for her brother saw her only as the supposed inmate of Mansfield Parsonage and replied yeah. but to invite her in the kindest manner to his own house. I mean, <laughs> this is a bit amazing. He's been there and has simply not realised that something's happening yeah. between Mary and, and Honestly, Edmund. I'm starting to think the only male character in this book with any real perception beyond his own interests, is Sir Thomas. So, favourite sentence. Do you want me to start with mine first? You start with yours, yes. 
I'm going to go with something Mary Crawford says, where she's talking about the three Miss Owens and asking Fanny what she knows about them. And then she finishes by saying, two play on the pianoforte and one on the harp and all sing or would sing if they were taught or sing all the better for not being taught or something like it. I just think that is a lovely way of capturing how people talk about other people. Yeah. She's got a good social eye and she can pick it up and turn it into a nice, neat little package. Yes, she's very good at that. Yeah. Right. Well, this one I chose because I think it was the actual sentence I've almost remembered best through all the years I've been reading Mansfield Park. Henry Crawford had too much sense not to feel the worth of good principles in a wife though he was too little accustomed to serious reflection to know them by their proper name. But when he talked of her having such a steadiness and regularity of conduct, such a high notion of honour and such an observance of decorum as might warrant any man in the fullest dependence on her faith and integrity, he expressed what was inspired by the knowledge of her being well-principled and religious and (laughs) I think it's got that loveliness that you were talking about earlier. And you almost get cross with Jane Austen for just giving it two ordinary words like well-principled and religious. But see, I kind of like it because, yes, it's lovely, but at the same time, it's a little bit highfalutin and she just cuts it down and saying, no, it's just this and this. You don't have the right vocabulary, so you're using all these fancy words. But at the end of the day, it's these two fundamental things of good principle and religion. (laughs) character we're going to talk about today is Lady Bertram and I've said this before we think of Mansfield Park as maybe one of her most challenging novels her richest with all these serious thoughtful undertones to it but at the same time it's really funny Mrs Norris is really funny but Lady Bertram is also really funny it keeps on coming up at times when you laugh at yes She's not a nice person, but she's not horrible like Mrs Norris. As we were just saying, she's so unsupportive of Fanny when she really should be. Yes, the only good thing she ever does to Fanny is give her her smelling bottle when Fanny comes in the second time. (laughs) Oh, and she sends Chapman to her. Yes. It's too late. Fanny has already dressed herself. but She does two nice things to (laughs) Fanny. Yeah, one of which is maybe effective. But she is so lazy... Is she completely stupid or has she just decided, I've got my husband, I don't need to think anymore, I don't need to move anymore, I don't need to do anything anymore except lie on the sofa and pat pug? I suppose one of the points I started thinking about with this is, was she a lot more infantilised while Sir Thomas was away because Mrs Norris got in there pushing her around? I mean, Mrs Norris... Up till then, sure she'd been around, sure she'd been bossy, but she'd been married, she must have had to do something for poor Mr Norris. She must have had a lot more to do. But within less than a year after she's got nothing to do, Sir Thomas goes. So she takes over a lot of probably what Sir Thomas did in pushing Lady Bertram to do this and she says don't you worry you rest I'll do it and you know Sir Thomas would have got her to be talking to the housekeeper and I just feel that she could have got infinitely worse under Mrs Norris's guidance. Although even from the start it said she took no interest in the education of her daughters. 
No, but I still think that when Sir Thomas was there around the place all the time, keeping Mrs Norris back, after all, that's one of the things yes. Mrs Grant says, that Mrs Norris is under much better control. Yeah. And it would have been the sort of things that Sir Thomas more or less insisted she did. Yeah. Mrs Norris would say, don't worry, don't worry, I'll do it. Look, she is supremely unintelligent. Her IQ is at about the same level as Mrs Bennet or as Mrs Palmer, which yes. I've made that comparison before. You know, she's married a man who is intellectually very much her superior, but the dynamic is completely different, which is probably partly because she's a more placid person, whereas the other two are a bit more hyperactive, but also because Sir Thomas treats her differently. But I don't think she's very intelligent. In another one of the discussions that have happened in the comments on her Facebook page, there was a post by Nadia in which... She speculated that maybe Lady Bertram suffered from the same kind of unspecified medical condition that Fanny had. And she actually says, I think we are invited to compare that Lady Bertram submits to the sofa while for Fanny a combination of inner strength and external force press her into activity. Whether the conditions are medically similar or not may be left to our imaginations as it's certainly not specifically stated. I do think that's an interesting theory that Lady Bertram is... Well, they're possibly both anemic. Yeah. We're not actively told that she's not a well person but certainly she doesn't move around much well also she must have had some excuse to insist on staying in the country rather than going up to london for the parliamentary session well her excuse might just have been i don't really want to and i think sir thomas would have look sir thomas also for all that he treats her with complete respect at the same time he is quite happy to tell her you will enjoy speculation more because he knows that he will enjoy whist more if she's not his partner he's not under any illusions and he doesn't i think enjoy spending time with her but he still treats her as lady bertram is entitled to be treated as his wife is entitled oh, to be treated. absolutely it's this decorum thing yeah. with him to have somebody sniping at their wife yeah the way mr bennett does or mr palmer does yeah is not yeah, it's decorum. not on yes realistically objectively She's almost as bad to Fanny as Mrs Norris is. She's not actively terrible to her, but some of Fanny's suffering also comes from Lady Bertram. But at the same time, I think Fanny genuinely loves Lady Bertram. Yes. And she likes feeling useful to Lady Bertram, which she certainly is. Later in the book, when Fanny's at Portsmouth, we see a couple of examples of her letters from Lady Bertram and that wonderful line, which is about how anyone at all addicted to the art of letter writing will feel for Lady Bertram that these wonderful, exciting pieces of news that she could have written about for a page and a half is tossed off by her son in a sentence. Which again is one of those odd things that she's doing the letter writing. I mean, that sounds more active and more intellectual than just sitting there making a fringe. But I see her letters as very inconsequential. They're full of the most conventional language. It's as if she has been properly educated in the art of letter writing. Yeah. And so she writes these correct, quite wordy letters that are devoid of emotion. So she's saying, My dear Fanny, I take up my pen to communicate some very alarming intelligence, which I make no doubt will give you much concern. Because this is about Tom being sick. This distressing intelligence, as you may suppose, has agitated us exceedingly, and we cannot prevent ourselves from being greatly alarmed and apprehensive for the poor invalid, whose state Sir Thomas fears may be very critical. She writes far more extensively than she speaks, and almost... More to the point, but at the same time at a distance because it's just so bound up in the conventions of letter writing. 
from my point of view, what I feel is, yes, I can believe that's what she's put in her letters, but I think she would have dictated them. Okay. <laughs> she wouldn't have had the trouble of picking up a pen and writing it. Fanny. But this yeah. one she must have written herself because yes. there is no Fanny. The- oh, Mrs Norris, no. No, Mrs Norris wouldn't have written that for her. No. It does seem like she's been educated in how to write letters and she's honed that over all her years as being Lady Bertram, <laughs> even if she was mostly dictating them. But she knows how to write letters. She knows how she to... She knows all the phrases supposed to put in letters yes when you compare to the amount of personality that comes through mary crawford's letters and even in edmund's letters yes as compared to the maybe it's not quite right to call them platitudes in lady bertram's but conventionalities conventionalities and so complete removal of personality in the letter writing until that one where she sees tom and is actually alarmed and upset and suddenly her writing is much more natural yes that shock brings out all her maternal response when she sees tom actually sick Yes. Again, I guess lack of imagination. But she misses her children. I mean, she sits there wanting to do nothing all day, Mm. but in the evenings when her children are not there... And it is kind of horrible, but at the same time kind of sweet the way she says, now we see the benefit of taking in Fanny because she'll always be with us. Yes. <laughs> Which is, on one hand, kind of nightmarish for Fanny, but on the other hand, kind oh, of... Well, look, at least she recognises how useful Fanny yes. is to her. Yeah. Yeah, Henry Crawford describes her as being stupid and how horrible it is for Fanny to have to attend that stupid woman. Yeah. I did actually feel kind of a little bit offended on Lady Bertram's behalf. So did I. E- even, so do I. Yes. Even though, objectively speaking, he is absolutely right. She is a stupid woman and Fanny is wasted on her. But at the same time... Look, I feel that that level of scorn is just a bit excessive. Yeah. He could say anything he liked about Aunt Norris. Yeah. But with Lady Bertram, it's a bit nasty particularly given Fanny's fondness for her. Mm. Anyway, I suppose another thing we need to talk about is, is she or isn't she having goes at Mrs Norris? Yes, well, of course, this is something that is raised by Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stone in talking of Jane Austen. Does Lady Bertram see through Mrs Norris all the time and just occasionally make these comments to have a bit of a go at her? It's where Mrs Norris says, I own it would give me great satisfaction to be able to do rather more, to lay by a little at the end of the year. And then Lady Bertram says, I dare say you will. You always do, don't you? (laughs) And when William is going away, Lady Bertram says, I'm glad you gave him something for I only gave him £10. (laughs) And then Mrs Norris, reddening, doesn't say anything more. (laughs) She probably gave him a half sovereign. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think she's deliberately having a go at Mrs Norris. I do think they are such funny scenes, but I think part of the reason they're funny is because Lady Bertram is so unconscious (laughs) of what she's doing, yes. And let's talk about Pug, who is, after all, I think the only pet animal that appears in all of Jane Austen. And this is something that came up in one of John Sutherland's books, Can Jane Eyre Be Happy? And the chapter is called Pug, Dog or Bitch? And he basically (laughs) says, is Pug male or female or what? The first time Pug turns up is Lady Bertram saying, I hope she will not tease my poor Pug. I have but just got Julie to leave it alone. So either Pug has been neutered or Lady Bertram genuinely has no idea what Pug's sex is. (laughs) She could partly be saying it because it's generic. This is her generic pet, Pug. (laughs) 
But then when it's been such a hot day that Fanny's been made sick, Lady Bertram says, sitting and calling to Pug and trying to keep him from the flower beds was almost too much for me. Yeah. Well, in that case, in the Cambridge edition at least, Pug is capitalised. So it seems like that she has called her Pug Pug. Yes. And clearly... It's a he at this point. But then the last time Pug is mentioned, another delightful Lady Bertramism, and I will tell you what, Fanny, which is more than I did for Mariah, the next time Pug has a litter, you shall have a puppy. (laughs) Which maybe she's talking about a litter that Pug is siring, but it sounds more like you're talking about a female Pug. But more to the point, is this the same Pug or has she just had a succession of pugs? Because she has a pug when Fanny arrives at 10. And she still has a pug when Henry Crawford proposes to Fanny eight years later. Yes. I don't know how long these little dogs live, but eight does seem quite a substantial age. And particularly for a pug that's going to be having more litters. But even John Sutherland says, if there was ever an inconsequential quibble in Austen scholarship, the changing sex of Lady Bertram's lapdog would seem to be it. But I think Pug is such an inherent part of Lady Bertram and just fits in with this lethargic personality she is. I think Hogarth did quite a lot of portraits of himself with his Pug. Okay. So I've just looked up the William Hogarth portrait with the Pug. I'll put a copy of it in the show notes. I picture a Pug as being quite small and compact with a cute little curly tail and a bulldog-style face. But the one in that portrait is actually looks quite large and has quite long legs. So pugs must be much more inbred now than they were in Hogarth's day. I guess I'd need to look at more contemporary portraits to know exactly what Lady Bertram's pug looks like because I've always just assumed it looks like a modern pug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the pug in this portrait by Hogarth, he doesn't look like a pug that's going to be happy just sitting on the sofa all day. <laughs> In this session, for the historical background bit, Harriet and I are both contributing. Harriet's going to talk about what actually happened in balls when they were dancing. I feel that these have to be placed in the context of coming out, so we'll deal with that too, though I'm afraid I can't contribute more than what can be picked up from the novels. Quite early in Mansfield Park, we learn two criteria for being out. Mary Crawford asks about Fanny. Does she go to balls? Does she dine out everywhere, as well as at my sister's? And hearing she doesn't, she responds, oh, then the point is clear. Miss Price is not out. Coming out, one gathers from Tom's anecdotes, was a significant stage in a girl's life. It involved, for example, a change in the style of dress. As Mary Crawford explains to Edmund, a girl not out has always the same sort of dress. A close bonnet, for instance, looks very demure and never says a word. The girl Mary Crawford's describing is still in the schoolroom, but Lydia Bennett is only 15 when she is going to balls and dining with the officers of Aunt Phillips. I do get the sense that... That's probably pretty young and a reflection on Mrs Bennet as a mother. Even Elizabeth does say that Lydia is perhaps a little young. On the other hand, if we've got Lydia as about as young as you can be, uh, we also have Fanny as already 18, probably going on 19, by the time anyone thinks of bringing her out. 
And another aspect is that the Lucas family restricts the number of daughters who are out at one time, but Mrs Bennet is happy to have all her five daughters out at once, Mm. which again, I think, shocks Lady Catherine to hear that. Yes. But on the other hand, what this illustrates is that it was very much up to the family. Nobody told them you can or you can't. There were no rules that anyone... In the Regency world that Georgette Hayer created, which of course bears... They're meant to be yeah. much, much higher up yeah. the Yeah, they're, they're much higher up the social scale, but the reasoning there for having only one daughter out at once is you put all your money into bringing her out, getting her a husband, and then you can focus on the next one because in that world that she creates, that's the whole point of being out is to get a husband as quickly as possible and move into your own household. Well, I think the other thing is that she is reading backwards from what was still happening in the 1930s Mm. where it went exactly like that. Yeah. All this money poured into each girl as it was her season. Yeah. Also what the books make clear and that perhaps if you're thinking in the Georgette Hire forward to the 1930s system of coming out, is this wasn't a specialised group of girls who were going through something together. But what these girls came out into was just the general society in which their parents moved, the world of the people they played calls on. If so it was really, if you take away the getting a husband side of it, It's just a rite of passage into adulthood. Yes, but the society they could go into very much depended where their parents were. So we see in Jane Austen the world of paying calls on neighbours, of attending the dinner parties their parents gave, being invited to dine by these neighbours and taking part in social jollifications like subscription dances at the local assembly rooms. The dinner parties they go to can be fun even for quite young girls. The Grants think it's quite acceptable to ask Lady Bertram to play speculation. So you've just had these fun activities. Mm. And if there were a lot more young people there, they would be doing a lot more. But it was, you know, we have to see, their parents' world they moved into. Anyway, the other thing, though, I think we have to see is, yes... They come out into general society. They're just adults. They do the things adults do. But there's this other pressure that I think I talked about in an earlier talk, the idea of the marriage market, the idea that through the 18th century, it became accepted that parents didn't organise marriages anymore, that the man in the marriage was entitled to choose his own partner. The parents might disapprove, they organised the wedding, but it was up to him to make a choice. Mm. And so what you've got on this general society, you've got this pressure to create situations where young men are likely to see young women that they're likely to fall in love with. So what you've got then is a society that is now trying to turn social occasions into ones where young men and women are likely to fall in love, which, of course, prior to that, when marriages were arranged by families, it probably was nothing like... It it didn't seem a good idea to let young women out 
to be looked at and to look at young men <laughs> because goodness knows what might happen. Yeah. You wait until they were married and then they had all these places. And so, you know, from very early 1700s, you are getting various places, building these assembly rooms. They could well have been as much for the young marrieds as they were for the unmarrieds. Mm. But over the century, it's moving more and more into this marriage market idea. And one of the most obvious ways of doing this was holding balls. And so if you wanted to sort of pull together a group of young people that you thought might be in the likelihood of marrying, they were pulled together. And now we're moving on to what happened at these balls. But I suppose I'm going to start with talking about just the fact that you've got a sort of a hangover here from the entertainment of the company. By the time we've got the ball at Mansfield Park, the older people that come are referred to as the chaperones. But even so, somehow the dancing is still seen as an entertainment to the company in the way singing and musical playing. I was thinking back in Pride and Prejudice, Sir William Lucas, every time he talks to Darcy and Elizabeth during the dancing, he comments on how he enjoys watching them. Yes. As if it is, he's not dancing, so he's there for the entertainment of watching the dancers. Yes, that fits together. Anyway, can you start talking a bit about dancing? Well, I don't actually know much about Regency dancing, but I have recently watched a couple of really good YouTube videos. The channel is called Tea with Cassiani. She actually is a ballroom dancer. She's read a lot of original texts on English country dancing, and she has done two videos specifically looking at what we can learn about dancing from Jane Austen's books. And I will put links in the description because they're really worth watching. And pretty much everything I say comes straight from her videos. I haven't done any additional research myself. So basically what I did already know is that at this time the waltz hadn't come in yet and in fact when it did come in for quite some time it was still considered a bit risque and straight-laced parents wouldn't let their daughters do it. So what instead they have is what is called English country dancing where they talk a lot about the set and the set is that all the couples are basically standing in a line going all the way down the room. That's what's called a long ways set. And they talk about going down the set and then going up the set. And so what I had envisaged, which I've now discovered was not right, I had pictured the couple at the top dances their way down the set and then the next couple dances their way down the set and you just kind of snake your way up to the top. Like tunnel ball. Yes, like tunnel ball. But that is actually not exactly right because as well as the set, which is all the couples in a long line, there are also what are called minor sets. And in the Regency period, they did what's called a triple minor, which is it's like a little subset of three couples. Mm. And the dance has a set of figures. And what happens is that... The leading couple dances the figures and the other two couples in that set, they may do a little bit of dancing as required by the figures, but it's mostly the leading couple. And then they move down one place 
and they do it again but it's a slightly different set of three and then they move down one place again and do it again so depending on how long the line of couples is when you're what's called the active couple you don't really have time for conversation because you're just going dancing 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 making your way all the way down the set until you get to the bottom but as you sort of move down the set couples behind you gradually become active couple as well so when it starts at the beginning you just have one active couple but once it's got going you have multiple active couples in the set but every subset of three just has one active couple so what this means is if you're an active couple you're very busy dancing your way down the set yeah if you're an inactive couple that's what's meant by moving up the set because as couples get behind you you move your way up you do a little bit of dancing as required by the figures but you're not the active couple in your minor set yeah and then when you've made your way to the top of the dance then you become the active couple and you're dancing all the way back down but if you start further down in the dance and the first active couple hasn't made it to you yet you're literally doing nothing which is why you can then chat to Sir Thomas or to Lady Bertram by the end you do have a lot of active couples so a lot more people dancing a lot fewer people just standing around doing nothing so all these conversations that happen in Jane Austen during the dance they are not being done when you're the active couple dancing your way down the set yes (laughs) because you're too busy dancing and remembering the figures the one I always remember is from Emma where Harriet is so entranced when she's dancing with Mr Knightley yeah and I don't know if the word's bouncing but anyway (laughs) she comes down the set very actively well that's another thing that Cassiani makes a big point of which is how important footwork is and that you don't just step the steps you do actually bounce as Harriet did to to a greater or lesser extent and that's one of her big criticisms with a lot of the adaptations there's too much stepping and not enough dancing yes and you actually see that in Mansfield Park at the point where Sir Thomas tells Fanny to stop dancing it's because he's seen that she's just been walking the final set and she's breathless and she's got a cramp which even allowing for Fanny's low levels of stamina still the fact that she's developed a cramp does indicate that it was actually very active it wasn't a slow stately type thing yes it was really you know get into it and get some cardio yes now the other thing and again I'd sort of worked this out before but it was good to have it confirmed which is they always talk about Bingley danced the first two with Miss Lucas and the next two with Miss King and the next two with Jane and the next two with Elizabeth. What that means is you basically cycled through the set twice. Oh, right. And of course, depending on how many couples there are in the line, that pair of dancers could actually go on for quite a long time, which means not just the amount of dancing you do as you're going down the set as the active couple. But the amount of but, standing around. But yeah, the amount of and standing the, around and, and conversing time, with and your time partner. time for conversation. Yes. Except with the couples to truly get to know one yeah. another. Which goes back to what you were saying earlier about this is a way of enabling people to meet each other and have semi-private conversation now just a couple of other things about balls again mostly that I gained from tea with Cassiani but sometimes I had already worked out one is the question of who opens the ball and it is typically the highest status person there but under certain circumstances it will be someone else so for example in Emma Mrs Elton talks about it should be her because she's newly married and so she is still being introduced into the neighborhood and so she should open the ball but it's also if girls are having their coming out 
then they get to open the first dance, which is, of course, what happens in Mansfield Park. So that's who leads the opening dance. But after that, I gather it kind of just various different people do get to. It's less on social status by that point and a bit more just trying to share it around. Yes, well, who's got a partner and who hasn't? And if you've got a partner, you can zip up to the top. If you're waiting around, you join the end. Yeah. And just the last thing is how long these balls go on for. And in this one, Sir Thomas sends Fanny to bed early at 3am and William is expecting to keep dancing for another two hours so it's William is anticipating that this ball which only has 12 or 14 couples will keep going until 5am and we so you might only have five four people left all dancing away again that is there in the text when it talks about the one where Fanny's just walked down and she's got a cramp it also mentions the shortening length so some couples have already dropped out yes So that's what I had to say about balls and dancing. But like I said, the YouTube channel I've drawn on exclusively for this is Tea with Cassiani. And I would recommend it because she has a lot of interesting information there. So once again, with the pop culture versions today, I'm going to be focusing entirely on the three adaptations and also on the web series modernization. And one thing I am going to look at each time is how Lady Bertram is presented because it's kind of interesting the different approaches taken. Right. So first of all, the 1983 version with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell. I'm sounding like a broken record here, but once again, it follows very much the plot in the order that it's laid out in the book with most of the dialogue from the book. Just a couple of things I noticed. First of all, when Mary showed the necklace to Fanny, my immediate thought was, that's really long. That would look terrible with a cross on the end of it. It would be hanging down practically at the bottom of her chest. Because I'd always visualised when she put them both on that the necklace was higher than the cross. It it actually looks very nice when she's wearing both of them because she's got the chain through the cross, has it sitting above the top of her dress, and then the necklace is hanging down past the top of her dress. So they look really nice together. But the necklace with the cross on it, I think, would have looked really quite terrible. Now, there's actually nothing about the necklace not fitting. She just wears them both. So that's something they left out, obviously, in the interest of saving time. In that scene after the ball, when Mary's kind of making all her jokes to try and find out more information about Edmund, Fanny is just totally non-responsive. It would be like a comedian playing to a dead audience, (laughs) which I thought really captured how it's presented in the book. And the last thing to comment on is that episode four finishes on Henry's line that he is determined to marry Fanny Price. Then episode five picks up immediately with the conversation between Henry and Mary. But I do like that sort of came out of nowhere surprise for the end of episode four. Now, Lady Bertram in this one seems kind of out of it for a lot of the time. Yeah. A bit spacey rather than indolent to me. And I, I guess I see her as indolent and unintelligent rather than actually spacey but maybe that's just me by contrast in 1999 with Frances O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller Lady Bertram in that again is spacey and out of it but in this case they've made a very deliberate decision and they've shown that she's just drinking laudanum all the time so she's, she's legitimately out of it yes this one doesn't have the visit from William so there's no cross or necklace so that's not part of the plot at all William simply doesn't turn up. William doesn't turn up. So Henry is obviously not going to be able to do anything for William. There's no scene of Henry telling Mary he plans to make Fanny fall in love with him. 
So the first inkling you have of it is the scene I talked about last time, the one I actually rather like. Henry is in the library when Fanny's in there. When he reads aloud to her, it's quite nice. But that is the first scene you see of Henry showing interest in Fanny, and you don't know why. At the ball, Fanny is very confident. She's basically flirting with Henry. It's completely not the Fanny of the book, but it is consistent with the Fanny they've presented in this movie. Just as we didn't have any scene of Henry telling Mary he plans to make Fanny fall in love with him, we also don't have any scene of Henry telling Mary that he means to marry Fanny. He just declares his love directly to Fanny. They're trying to fit everything into a feature-length movie, So, and Mansfield Park is such a rich book with so many good scenes, they obviously just had to cut stuff. I guess they decided, we've already shown Henry's bad points up to now. We don't need to have another one of him saying he wants to make Fanny fall in love with him. We'll cut that in the interest of space. I guess that was their thinking. The 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson. In this one, the ball is not actually Fanny's coming out. It's her birthday. We're, We're told tomorrow is Fanny's birthday. And Sir Thomas says... We should have a ball for Fanny's birthday. And Fanny says, no, I don't want a ball. I want to have a picnic because that was what we did last time William was here. Now, obviously, it's not December in this version like it is in the book. (laughs) Edmund does give Fanny a chain for the cross. And at that point, she tells him that Mary has already given her the necklace. And he insists that she wears Mary's. And then he talks to, to Fanny about the London life that Mary wants. So they kind of do get that stuff in that wasn't really present in the 1999 version. But yeah, then this picnic. It's likely that one of the reasons they chose to have a picnic was because it was cheaper. They didn't need to hire as many extras. They didn't need to dress a ballroom. But the first thing you see at the picnic is a game of blind man's bluff. Because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it was something that tended to be played, Uh but probably at the rowdier sort of parties, not the people who went in for decorum. Well, in this iteration, Fanny is much more physically active, never has her hair up sort of girl. So that does fit. Now, after the game of Blind Man's Bluff, then William dances the hornpipe. All right. um, Which I guess he's a sailor, so... And then they do have a dance on the lawn. Yes. And Henry dances with Fanny, and Mary does have the line about saying it's the last time she will dance with Edmund. And then, having done that, which is from the book, they then have a bit where Mary says to Edmund that he keeps thinking he's going to find something deeper to her, but I assure you I am profoundly shallow. Which is, <laughs> look, it's a nice line, and it made me laugh, but it didn't feel a very Jane austen sort of line. Yes, that particular use of shallow yeah. isn't one that I think she ever uses. No, it, it doesn't feel period, but it, it, it did make me laugh. Yes. So. Again, there's no scene of Henry telling Mary he has fallen in love with Fanny. Instead, we cut to the day after the picnic and Fanny is called in to see Sir Thomas, which is for Henry's proposal. Now, Lady Bertram in this one is played by Gemma Redgrave. She's much more indolent than Spacey. She doesn't play Lady Bertram as completely dim either. She does have some quite biting lines, but also, as I said, I I do like her presentation of indolence for so much of it. Yep. So then moving on to the 2014 web series from Mansfield with Love. Because it's a modernisation, the whole coming out ball isn't a concept that works. So instead, it's Fanny's birthday and William says, well, let's go out to some pubs and some clubs and have a nice time. Henry isn't there for it, but Tom and Julia have come back for Frankie's birthday. 
Now, rather than a chain for the cross, because there's no cross in this one, there has been a scene, which I think I might have already talked about, where Henry tells Mary that he's fallen in love with Frankie, that he can't stop thinking about her, and so he's going to go to New York to try and put her out of his mind. But before he does that, he leaves Mary something and says, can you give this to Frankie for her birthday? Because she probably won't accept it from me and she'll think it's some kind of trick. So Mary gives it to Frankie, but Mary says that it's a present from her. She doesn't say that it's a present from Henry. And it's some expensive earrings. And then Ed also gives her earrings, which are apparently cute little owls rather than expensive jewellery. And as with the book and the simple chain being more to Fanny's taste than the beautiful necklace, in this, the cute little owl earrings are much more to Frankie's taste than the expensive ones. But because she promised Mary, she wears the earrings to her birthday do so not only has mary not told frankie that the gift was bought by henry but she also doesn't tell henry that she didn't tell frankie so when he sees a video of her wearing the earrings he thinks it means she's accepted the earrings that he bought for her yes so which is a bit complicated but then henry comes back from new york and tells mary that he's absolutely fallen for frankie that the girls in new york just made him think of her It does fit in with the way Henry was done in Chapter 30, talking about how he feels like he can say anything to Fanny. So I thought that was a nice tie-in. And in terms of the Lady Bertram in this one, well, she doesn't appear. But you get the impression that she's, yeah, she's not appearing, but she probably is a bit like Lady Bertram in that she's basically indolent. She's chosen to call her pug, pug. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the pop culture versions. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 31 to 34 of Mansfield Park. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneausten.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us on your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.